Good afternoon, everyone. It's a beautiful Sabbath, as uh, Mr. Ames and Mr. Pyle said, but uh, it's the hottest Sabbath of the year where we're having our fast. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how that happened, but we're, we're going to keep mighty warm today. Anyway, I hope you'll all be praying for me and your brethren around the world. If you sense that I'm tired, you'll know why. We're fasting, and I guess it's about 94, 95 degree heat outside, but thankfully we have air conditioning. You know, back in the time when Jimmy Carter was running for president, while they had a, uh, uh, a northerner, I forget who it was, introduce him, and he talked about the wonderful uh, New South. And uh, the New South is a great place to be because of one word, Air conditioning. <laughs> it's completely remade the place. I remember being on the baptizing tours back in 1951, 1952, and 1953, just circling and circling all through Texas and Arkansas and Louisiana and Mississippi and you know, all these places. And uh, boy, was it hot. And you'd sit there sometimes, remember being at the Hammer home. Some of you remember the Roy Hammers who donated land and helped get Ambassador started college. Ambassador College started there at Big Sandy. But uh, they had about four fans, and each fan were named differently. No air conditioning, but, you know, you'd sit there and fan yourself, and then the fan would get you, and it was quite interesting. And uh, so we had to fight to keep awake. But anyway, fasting is good for us, and we are grateful to be here, I hope, and in a right spirit today. Welcome to any visitors who are here. We don't normally fast. We just have about one fast a year, by the way, uh, beside the Day of Atonement, which is a commanded fast. But frankly, we had several, I think it was probably 8 to 15 different brethren and ministers commenting to us over the last few months. We have had a special fast, usually each summer, and they actually asked for that. They said they feel we need it. And there's a, the sort of a malaise in the church, and they felt there are a number of reasons where people are trying to go to sleep, and we need to be praying for the church, pray for one another, and draw closer to God. So we did set the fast, and certainly it's going to be a good thing for us. My wife and I did have a wonderful trip to the camp, and I'm very grateful for the Living Youth Camp. As uh, was read in the announcements, we had about 200 campers and staff all together and a very wonderful atmosphere. And several mentioned this, and Mr. Uh, Mr. Weston, who's the director of the camp, uh, said it, and it's not just something he's bragging about because he's been director for many years, but a number of them said they felt it was the best single camp that we've ever had. And I could sense the atmosphere was so wonderful. It's a sort of a spirit of love and unity and forwardness. And so they did have a wonderful group of young people and staff. And the whole atmosphere was very good. The weather was perfect. They had one half day of some rain before we got there. But except for that, all two weeks were basically in the 70s or up to about 80 degrees and just absolutely beautiful. So we're very grateful for what's being done there and it's certainly going to make a big difference in the lives of these young people who've gone. I was blessed because I had five, four of my grandchildren there. I had my daughter Elizabeth was there and then four of my grandchildren were there. Michael's uh, children, uh, Alexandra and Blake were there, and my son Jim's children, uh, of course, were there as well, Christopher and Michelle. So that was interesting to go to camp after all these years and find that four of my grandchildren were there, and that was really encouraging. Well, brethren, we're fasting here before the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and it's good to think about that. God is watching us, and God is allowing us to go on several more years we don't know whether it's 5 or 15 or 20, to finish His work. 
But I think most of us realize in the living church of God that we are really near the end of an age and all kinds of things that we have talked about in prophecy. And I'm not talking about one or two things. I'm talking about 10 or 15 things. All these things are now coming about. They're not all happened yet, but they're beginning to happen. And I'll be writing and preaching more about that and later. And I want to put a whole list in the in the uh, semi-annual letter that I'll be writing in November, which could inspire, I think, the whole list, our whole subscription list. But at any rate, it is exciting to see that. And after 54 and a half years in Christ's ministry, and in a few weeks I can say I've been in God's work for 58 years because I came to Ambassador College 58 years ago next month. And I've had that opportunity to be about the work, to hear Mr. Armstrong, to hear the prophecies, to see what he said, to see whether or not they happened and I came out from Missouri, you know, that's the show-me state. I came out from Missouri to check up on him. And he laughed about that later. He said, I heard you came out to check up on me because I told others that. But I don't care. I did check up on him. And I found out he was right. He had human mistakes, as all of us do. But what he said was right. The way of life was right. The prophecies were right. And all the other things, the basic things were right in a remarkable way because he was used by God more than any man for hundreds of years to get at the very truth of the Bible. Today we need, though, the day of fasting, because many of us, through circumstances, have become lukewarm in the church of God. Some are kind of losing their zeal. They're letting down. There's a spiritual malaise affecting many people, as the number of written. Some are discouraged about the splits or people leaving or about other past things or about the fact that people are not being healed more rapidly, more dramatically, and all kinds of things people get themselves into. So let's think about that today as we fast. And I hope, brethren, that you have studied and prayed a lot even before you came. As I preached to you a few weeks ago, fasting doesn't do an awful lot of good if you're not spiritually involved with God, you know, during that period of time. You need to study the Bible more and let God teach you. You need to pray more and lift up your hands to God and say, Father in heaven, guide me, teach me, correct me, help me draw closer to you who give me life and breath and the food I eat and everything I have. And if you have that attitude and you're trying to learn from God and you're drawing close to God and you're sensitive to drawing closer to God's will during the day of fasting, it can be a great help. Back in Second Chronicles 7, we find an interesting account that a lot of you are familiar with. Before that, you'll find Solomon's dedicatory prayer. He dedicated the temple of God with remarkable prayer, absolutely wonderful. And then they kept and wound up, I should say, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles because the Feast of the Seventh Month was during the time that they had this dedication, as you'll see in the earlier chapters. You just look back a couple chapters, you'll see that. And after, of course, they'd kept the feast of the seventh month, he sent away the people. This is verse uh, 9, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 9. Joyful and glad of heart for the goodness the Eternal had done for David, for Solomon, for his people. So Solomon finished the house of the Eternal and the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Then, verse 12. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. Then the ever-living one, Yahweh, the one who lives forever, as the Hebrew word means, appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain 
Now, brethren, why is there no rain? Well, Al Gore will say that's because of global warming. Well, that's fine. Maybe it is partially that. But who controls global warming? Who controls the weather? Who's controlled the weather for the last 6,000 years before global warming was ever heard of? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the Creator God, that's who. And the world's going to realize that someday. When I shut up heaven and there's no rain or command, sometimes God commands the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Yes, He teaches us lessons through trials and tests. He punishes people sometimes to shake them, to wake them up for their own good. If my people who are called by my name, and brethren, that's us here today, we are the church of God, and the true church is called the church of God twelve times in the New Testament, far more than any other name, and that's the official name. If you read the beginnings, the introduction to the book of Corinthians, under the church of God at Corinth, 2 Corinthians, under the church of God at Corinth, and so on and so forth through the whole New Testament. It should be called that. Now, there are a lot of churches of God around Charlotte. There's the Central Church of God down here and others. But, of course, they keep the wrong days. They keep the pagan Sunday, the day of the sun. They don't understand God's Word or God's prophecies or any of those things. So the church of God alone, the name isn't everything, but it's an important thing. But if we're called by God's name, not just because of the name, but because of what we do, will humble themselves. And how do you humble yourself? Throughout the whole Bible, it shows very clearly, as I brought out in that sermon on fasting, one of the main ways and most effective ways God's servants humble themselves continually was by prayer and fasting. Fasting. Doing without food. Bringing you down. For those of you who are visiting, it's not your fault, you didn't know, or you may not be a member of the church yet, and that's fine. God has to guide that and open your minds. But most of us here have not had a drop of water or a bite of food since about, in my case, 7.20 or so, just a little over an hour before sunset last night. So we might be getting tired before the sermon is over, and you'll understand that. I should be getting more tired than you do, though. <laughs> I have to do the preaching here at the end of the fast day. So you have mercy on me. Don't feel bad about yourself. You're just selfish. Feel bad about me instead, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, if my people who are called by name, what my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, were to seek God. And again, I've given whole sermons on that. That's so important, brethren, that attitude of saying, Father, what do you really want me to do? And to seek God by studying in the Bible, not just assuming, you know, having an opinion. Here's what I think. Here's what I think. Or, you know, here's what old grandmother taught, and she was a wonderful woman. And I had a wonderful grandmother who was a wonderful woman, but she was a mainstream Protestant. God did not call her. And, of course, many others have had wonderful grandmothers over in Thailand, and they were Thai Buddhists. And I have had many people tell me, Dr. Hay and John Halpert and many of our worldwide ministers, that the Thai Buddhists were some of the most gentle and kind and loving people on the face of the earth. Can you be gentle and kind and loving? Is that the answer? No, that's part of the answer. But, of course, the other half of the story, which they don't often tell you, is that the Thai Buddhists and most of their monks when they get into religious war among their various sects or with others, they will whip out long knives and cut each other to people, pieces, in person with the blood spurting everywhere. And yet, most of the time, they're very nice. Okay, that's good. <laughs> but if you have the fear of God, 
the true God of Israel and read the Bible, which gives you the answer, and prove to yourself that this book was inspired by God. A lot of people don't understand that. They think, well, it was kind of put together and there were errors. No, there weren't. Somewhere along the line, you have to prove it. I can't I give a sermon on that now. Dr. Manel has commented. He has a whole booklet on that. We could go on and on about that and should. Because many people today are having their faith assaulted by all these constant books and stuff against the Bible. But brethren, I've seen that if you see the prophecies of the Bible over and over, specifically telling about what was going to happen to one major city, it was going to be completely destroyed, the city down the road was going to be kept going, and it happened, and again it happened, and again it happened, it's city after city, nation after nation, and even things today, beside all the other ways to prove the Bible, that's just one way to a carnal mind, because those are physical things a carnal mind can figure out, you begin to realize, no, God did inspire this book. His signature is in this book. And you have to think, if there is a loving God, and you have to think that through, brethren, I understand that. I have. I thought about it, prayed about it. I've had doubts come in my mind over the last 58 years, just like all of you have. If there is a real God, a spirit personality who made us in His image, would He leave us with some kind of a book that we can't be sure what it is, we can't be sure which part of it's true and which part of it's error. You see, the mainstream Protestants, if they read the Scripture, thou shalt not kill, and they say, well, in time of murder, I guess we can kill, and they have a way of reasoning around that. I understand that's the way I used to do. If they read that it's a shame for a woman to speak in church and you should not have women preachers, they say, well, you know, that was Paul's generation. That was just part of the culture situation at that time. That doesn't apply today because of that. And then if they read other scriptures about this or that or 5,000 other things, it's an abomination for a man to lie with another man. Homosexuality is an abomination. Well, you know, that was just the ancient Israelites and they didn't understand and blah, blah, blah. You could go on and on and then you tear this chapter out, you tear that chapter out, you tear those verses out here and there, then what do you have left? If enough people come at it in that attitude, there won't be much left. And even the part that is left, different groups will disagree upon, which they do. You have to come to the place somewhere along the line that you believe that there is a God that inspired the Bible. Read Dr. Winnell's book, read it again, the Bible, Fact or Fiction, which is sent out absolutely free all over the world. <laughs> And he wrote it absolutely free. We didn't even give him any bonus. I need to give him an ice cream cone for writing that book. <laughs> anyway, but at any rate, it's a very helpful booklet. And we need to prove that, though. That's a basic thing. God is in charge. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And brethren, many of our own people have gotten into wicked ways. Most of our own church is not. But still we get into doubts and we get into disagreements and we get into hurt feelings and we get into a spirit of bitterness sometimes. Turn from their wicked ways. Then I will heal or hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That was God's promise. So God is in charge and God promises that. So many of our people in the church of God and even the larger church of God, as we might say, talking as well about these other groups, are weak and sometimes confused. We've had a lot of trials the last 35 years. 
About 35 years ago, one of our ministers, outstanding one, was kicked out of the church temporarily and then brought back. And people were upset about that. They didn't understand. How could a leading minister have sin? They didn't understand that. They were hurt by that. Then later on in 1979, 1980, we had the receivership. And the state of California came in accusing Mr. Armstrong of stealing funds and making us look bad all over the world. And they came later and checked and checked and rechecked and all kinds of things and finally dropped the case because there was no case. It was just a bunch of accusations from some of these bad guys. Nevertheless, it hurt the name of God's church for a while and Satan caused it and God allowed it to happen. Then, of course, we had the Tkachas come in and take over the church of God and completely scuttle the work, the truth, the colleges, the foreign offices, everything destroyed. Joe Tkach and his wrecking crew came in and wrecked nearly everything. And it was horrible, just horrible what happened. And I say horrible because I have an emotional feeling about it. It was God's work. It was not just Mr. Armstrong's work. And before I started Global, I had put 40 years of my adult life into that work, working and working and fasting and praying and driving myself and losing sleep and so on to help build that work. That was partly my work, partly Mr. Partian's work, partly Mr. Ames' work. Others above us gave our lives in building that work for many, many years. And they tore it to pieces. Did God allow that? God caused... Solomon here in this, just before this occasion, I read to you to build the most fabulous, the most beautiful temple, probably the most gorgeous building that has ever existed on the face of the earth. But when Israel turned aside, what did God do? God let the whole thing be torn to bits and destroyed and burned. God does not need a building here on earth. God could go poof and make himself another building just like that, if you follow me. He's not going to bless something if it's being perverted and misused. And God Himself, if you read Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and many other verses in the Bible, talks about a great apostasy that was come along. And the spirit of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, talking about traffic laws, I think you know better, talking about God's laws, a man of lawlessness and this whole attitude of lawlessness. And God allowed such a man to come in and take over the church and test his people. The last great apostasy, perhaps, we hope so. But at any rate, that happened, and that discouraged people. People also began to be discouraged because after that, people didn't have enough faith. They said, where's God? Where's Christ? You let things fall apart. As I've said before, I even had a certain doubt, not in the truth, but just why, where is Christ in all of this for a while? I honestly did. And then a several months or maybe actually a few years after we started the Global Church of God and my wife and I and Mr. and Mrs. Davis and a number of others put this whole thing together and Mr. Crockett and Mrs. Crockett back in Little Rock and my son Mike back in Atlanta started churches right away. I began to realize at that point, wait a minute, weak as I am, I am very weak, and I don't claim to be a great one. I'm not. I don't have Mr. Armstrong's personality or speaking voice or capacity in many, many ways. But God allowed me, because I've been one of the first five evangelists ordained and been there with Mr. Armstrong more than any one other man in certain ways, still faithful at that point, He allowed me to raise up the church. And within about three or four months after the God is booklet came out, which was one of the biggest signals, like a great shot across the bow, they were turning totally to paganism. 
Within four months, we had a different church. We had a place to go. And people could come out of the apostasy if they wanted to. And literally within weeks, not months, we were on some radio stations. We had a magazine and so on after we started. Yes, there was a place to go. Christ did not forsake His church. And we need to understand that. So people have to have spiritual perception about these trials that come along and understand God's purpose in it and not try to get hurt not try to get confused and disillusioned. We need God's help. And sometimes it helps us to back off and to pray and fast and meditate. Say, Father, why is this happening? Please show me Your will. Not my will, but may Your will be done. And look in the Bible for answers. You see, not just what I here's what I think and what I think real quick in our human imagination. We have to learn from trials. Turn back to James, if you would, brethren, the book of James, chapter 1. The book of James in your New Testament, chapter 1, and beginning in verse 2. My brethren, James writes, and he's writing to us by God's inspiration, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing is God testing you. Yes, he's testing you right now, frankly. Is He testing me? Yes, He's testing me too. Will I try to be faithful to God's Word? Will I try to help you sincerely? Or will I try to bring in some personal ideas of my own or something in a wrong way? He's testing me. He's testing you. Are you going to say, well, I don't agree with that, and I'm going to have this attitude and that attitude and blah, 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 and try to block out God's truth because of some of your own vanity or preconceived ideas or hurt feelings or whatever you have. So he says the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience, you see, if you keep on, try to learn, let God work with you. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you have to try to learn the lessons every way you can. As I've said, I've been through a lot of trials and things happened to me that did not seem good at the time. And sometimes they were not good. Sometimes they were necessary for me, and I learned that later. But sometimes they were done maybe in the wrong way at the wrong time. But God still allowed it to teach me lessons that I might not have learned some other way. And God knew that. So I don't blame God for any of that. I'm grateful for what He's done. Turn to 1 Peter, here in verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You are saved in one sense. Now, once you've accepted Christ and you have God's Spirit, you're saved from your past sins. The death penalty is removed, but you're ultimately saved. As you know, Jesus said, He that endures to the end will be saved. That's back in Matthew twenty-four thirteen. That's the ultimate salvation when you're born of the Spirit. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And brethren, some of you have been grieved. People, I don't understand this. And how come someone died? And how come someone got sick? And God just let it go on and on. And how come someone bad in the work did this or that or made this or that mistake? I don't understand it. I'm going to get my feelings hurt. I'm going to begin to doubt God. How come this outside thing happened and God didn't straighten it out right away? You know, people in the world say, Would a loving God let the Holocaust happen? And six million Jews be burned in Hitler's ovens and all the rest of it. Eighteen million people in various torture camps 
not just the Jews, but the Danes and the Dutch and the French and the Poles and the Hungarians and all the others where the Germans came in and took over. Horrible things happened. The total was about 18 million human beings. Why did God allow that? Were they God's people? A lot of them belonged to churches, but they certainly weren't the church of God. And they didn't know God. And as we've said, it's another sermon, but God is letting this world go. People say, Lee, get God, get your nose out of our business. Yes, God is doing that. God has been doing that for 6,000 years. He's letting the world go its own way, burn its fingers real good, and then He will straighten it out and they will look back and realize they had their chance to do their own thing. It never brought them happiness. It never brought them peace. So He allowed them to do these things to one another. You say, that's horrible. They're all dead. Well, again, that's because the world and the Protestant churches out there have no understanding of God's plan. We don't often think of it in this way, but one of the wonderful things when you understand the truth about the Holocaust and all the other horrible things that have happened is that God has what we call the great white throne judgment, that final resurrection when everyone who has ever lived and died who did not understand is going to be given a chance. Not a second chance. Not a second chance. A first genuine opportunity to understand the purpose of life. And they will understand. And the vast majority will, will heed and obey then. So when you think of those six million Jews, when you think of these nice society people and the Lusitania and the Titanic and these ships that have sunk and it tells about, what was it, a Protestant minister and a Catholic minister and a rabbi and a, someone else, all the four men, four clerics, you know, kind of locked arms and prayed together. Very touching story. I suppose those ministers were sincere. They were just blind, just as I was a blind boy in the Methodist church and met well and sang songs before the general hospital and the patients would come out and smile at us and us little kids in Sunday school out singing songs. Were we trying to do bad? No, we weren't trying to do bad. We just didn't understand that Christmas was pagan, had nothing to do with Christ or His religion at all. We just thought this is nice to do. So those guys were sincere. Are all those people wiped out? No, they're all going to come up. God says, open, pink, file number 13, and bang, they're all alive again. And then they can understand. Why did God allow me to be tortured in Buchenwald or Auschwitz? Then they will understand. Why did God allow, you know, as the Russian soldier wrote in the siege of Kremlin when so many tens of thousands were, were, were actually freezing to death or being killed, a horrible situation. Where is God? He didn't understand. They will understand then. Lots of trials going on all over the world. Why did God let those people on the bridge die over in Minneapolis the other day? Not one of them was in God's church, as far as we know. They did not understand. They'll be resurrected very quickly as far as God's time is concerned. The next split seconds, as far as they're concerned, they're awake, they're up again, and God will say, this is the way. And some of you, if you're there, will, will say, this is the way. Walk you in it and help them understand. So in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, genuine faith, you really believe in God right down to your toenails. God help you do that. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, perishes, though it is tested by fire. Fire symbolizes persecution and trials and so forth throughout the Bible. It's tested. Our faith 
will be tested by fiery trials. And they're not always fun. When I was walking, going, driving around every Sunday, Oahu, wondering would I ever get back. I thought they're back there and I'm out here and this bad guy wanted to get rid of me and I could see that and knows what was happening and I just had to pray, God, you take care of it. I can't do it. Nothing I can do. My son David is up here visiting and his wife and our new granddaughter from Atlanta. And David was a little tiny baby, just weeks old. He doesn't remember that. But there we were circling around and waiting and waiting on God to intervene, tested by fire, that he may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have to look to God and know that he is going to take care of it. Brethren, many of our people are also overcome, not just by trials, but by the cares of this world. And I think most of you know that. We've got to think about that, be realistic about that as well. You turn, if you would, with me back to uh, Matthew. Uh, let's go to the book of, of Matthew, and this time uh, Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. And here in the 16th chapter of... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Let's turn with Matt, first of all to Matthew 13. I jumped the track here myself. Matthew 13, and uh, he is talking here in this place about parables. And he said in verse 18, Therefore let us hear the parable of the sower. And so now he explained the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown. And this is he who received the seed by the wayside. So Satan is alive, a being. He comes in virtually through circumstances. You know, someone will come to the door right then after he hears our broadcast or do something to just immediately distract him. He just grabs the word right out of his brain. But he who received the word on stony places, this is he who hears the word. He may hear our program or see the television or read a magazine or somehow hear the truth. And, and he hears it and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root. He's a very shallow person and endures only for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises, he has some trouble, may lose his job because of the Sabbath or whatever, uh, he immediately stumbles. Well, that's too much. That's too hard. I'd like to obey God, but I can't keep this Saturday Sabbath. I'd like to obey God, but I can't do this or can't do that. So his carnal mind gets him. Verse 22, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And notice, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And that's a huge thing here in the United States and certainly much of the Western world, because we are the richest peoples on earth at this point in time, and people have a lot of money, and people have a lot of leisure, and they look to that, and anything interferes with that, they awfully just stiff-arm God. They don't want God to get in the way of their money. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, they don't realize riches, as the Bible says, fly away. God can turn things around and you end up with nothing or you're, you're, you're dead. You have a heart attack and you're dead the next day and what good do your riches do? So God thinks about all those things as He puts these things to us in His Word. The cares of this world. Many wonderful ladies will not be worrying about money, but they get so involved in their house or so involved in the Ladies' Aid Society or so involved with their children or whatever, their mind just on that, on that, on that, and that's all they can think about. And they don't have time to study, or they don't take time, I should say, to study and to pray and to walk with God. 
other men get so involved in their business and making more money and making more money and making more money, they don't want anything else to interfere. So they don't take time to study, they don't take time to pray, and they don't take time to walk with God. Mr. Armstrong told you, older brethren in person probably, and in his autobiography about Hewlett C. Merritt. Most of you older brethren have seen pictures of Ambassador Hall, this, this building where you go up all these steps with trees on each side, and right at the top is this beautiful building. And it was beautiful. And it was the residence of Hewlett C. Merritt, one of the richest men in the United States of his time, and he was on the board of about 16 corporations and worth tens of millions of dollars at a time that the dollar was worth ten times as much as today. So he was probably worth a half a billion or a billion dollars in today's money. And he would go all over Pasadena, and if he'd see a, uh, something, he'd say, I want to buy that. He, and his, his own aide told me that, because I worked at his home and recruited some other students. When I was student body president, Mr. Armstrong asked me to get some guys together to help paint these old houses. And when we got them painted, he wouldn't pay us. And he was a multi-hundred millionaire in today's language. And I went to his secretary, and she said, well, see his personal aid. And I went to see his personal aid. She used to see here and back and forth. And finally, I caught him in our library. I found he'd sneak over from these houses and come to the Ambassador College Library so he could get this, make free phone calls. He made free phone calls, even long-distance calls, from our library. That's the way his mind worked. And I talked to his aide finally and tracked him down. And one time he said, well, all Mr. Merritt thinks about is money. I'll be driving along. He said, see that vacant lot? Check on that. I want to buy that. I make more money off of that. That was on his mind all the time. So I caught him, and he was in our library. And some of you remember that's a little anteroom on the way out. And so I kind of blocked the doors. He was going to come out. I said, Mr. Merritt. And he, he, he met me, I think, once before, knew who I was. I said, I'm the one that organized the fellows to come over and paint your houses. And I said, we need our money. We're students. We're doing without. And, he's, and uh, he looked at me a minute, and, he, and I was, you know, bigger than he was. He was shriveled up, little guy, about 84 years old. And he had a cane or an umbrella, kind of an umbrella cane. He kind of waved it at me, and he said, Hewlett C. Merritt owes no one anything. And I kind of dodged that thing, and then he went right by. Of course, I could have grabbed him and slammed him to the ground real quick. But that's not the way to win friends and influence people. <laughs> so I didn't do that. <laughs> he never did pay us. But he was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. His mind was on money, money, money. That's all he could think about. Well, not too long after that, he died. One of his sons, I think his only son, committed suicide right on those front steps and other horrible things happened to his family. He was not blessed by God. He was not a happy man. And that man told me and his secretary told Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Merritt is not a happy man. He was a grouch, but he didn't know God. The deceitfulness riches, physical things, the cares of this world can think we don't have time for God. Brethren, we've got to take time for God. And we've got to put the God of the Bible at the center of our lives if we're going to be truly happy and close and have the faith and the courage we need in these years ahead. Let's turn to chapter 16 now, Matthew 16. And here you find how uh, when Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, well, they asked who he is. Some said he was John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And down in verse 16, Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. But I say to you that you are Petros, a small stone in the Greek language, 
And on this P-E-T-R-A, Petra, the larger form of that word, meaning a massive stone, a huge boulder, an actual rock cliff, what Jesus represents, of course, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, Hades, the grave, will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He gave him the way in. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and loose on earth will be loosed. Then he commanded, and that's just the way of life. We've explained that, not some magic keys. Later in chapter 18, he extended that to all the apostles. Then he commanded that they should tell no one he was Christ. And then he began to show them how he was going to go up to Jerusalem and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Peter then began to correct him and say, I'm going to let that happen and put him down. And he said, Get behind me, Satan. Even to Peter, right after Peter supposedly was made the Pope in that previous verse, the Catholics say that, which he was not, Peter or God, Christ rebuked him powerfully. Get behind me, Satan. You don't mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then, notice this for us. Verse 24, right after that encounter, Jesus said to his disciples, and this is us, If anyone desires to come after me, if you really want to follow Jesus Christ, let him deny himself. Don't try to be the richest man on the block necessarily. Don't try to be the prettiest woman on the block necessarily. Don't try to spend all your time on whatever physical thing gets in the way. Whatever. Try to serve God. Humble yourself before God. Seek God. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, you've got all these life-saving mechanisms. You know, we have backup plans. Back in Worldwide, a whole bunch of our ministers were moonlighting. And I found uh, recently that we've had one or two, and one or two that were doing that left. They were sort of moonlighting, had other jobs. That's not good. They should, if they tell us, of course, that's different. But some, if they do something kind of on the side, uh, as one was doing, and trying to get extra money for we're paying them, and they're supposed to be in the ministry, and they're out selling real estate or whatever it is, if you follow me, that's not being a minister of Christ. So anyway, uh, deny yourself. Whoever loses his life will find it. So you have to have that attitude. Many of us have backup systems in our own mind to take care of ourselves. You say, have you ever had? Yes, I've had those. I've had to realize that, well, you know, you're not fully trusting God in this part of your life. You're not fully trusting God in that part of your life. And I've had to repent. Am I now fully trusting God in every single phase of my life? No, I'm sure I'm not. And God will reveal that to me as time goes on. And I can see some things right now where I need to fully trust God in every phase of my life. And you do too. But think about this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. For whoever desires to save his life... You want to, you know, make your life good. Now, it's not wrong to go out to a nice restaurant sometimes with friends. We want you all not to think about food now. Get that out of your mind. <laughs> Sorry about that. Up. <laughs> Kidding. But anyway, that's not a sin. But if your mind's on those things primarily, or if that in any way gets in the way of serving God, serving your fellow man, get control of it. Put God first. Don't let anything... Your wife, your husband, your children, your job, your money, 
you're you're standing in society you belong to these clubs or you know you're a member of the of uh, the rotary club and the country club and that don't let any of that stuff get in the way of serving god otherwise you end up having another god before the true god you may not realize it but that's what you're doing and when you think it through of course that's true so whoever desires to save his life by padding your life with all this stuff to take care of yourself will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, you say, Christ, I'm going to give my life to you. I really mean it. And you try to lay down your life. You'll give up a job if you have to. You'll leave your city. You'll do whatever it is and try to go and find the truth and obey the truth. And if you do that, God will bless you. Is He going to make you all millionaires? No. But He will take care of you in this life. He will protect you in vast number of cases from the great tribulation, from terrible things. And He will give you eternal life in tomorrow's world. And there's nothing greater than that. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come. And brethren, He will come. He's not going to wait forever. Christ's feet will be on this earth, I'm sure, within less than 20 years. And maybe I'll be wrong, but I don't think so this time. He will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each one according to His work or His works. What have you done? How much have you accomplished? How much have you given and helped and served, you see, in God's service? That's what Christ is looking at, not saying, I love you, Lord, and then do nothing but doing all you can to help and build God's people, the work of God, the church of God, and help prepare for the kingdom of God. We've got to learn to have a very powerful commitment to God in every phase of our lives. One thing coming to me, I may preach on this later, I just gave a sermon on faith recently, so I won't want to devote this to that, but a concept that I'm trying to learn in my own life about some few things I realize I haven't straightened out. I may find some more, not that they're all few, I'm not goody-good. I'm not perfect yet. God's still working with me too. But we need to burn our bridges. If you think about what I'm talking about. In other words, you say, I've got to put this behind me. I'm going to burn my bridges and not hang on to that anymore and trust that God will take care of me in this part of my life, whatever it is. I'm going to burn my bridges and quit thinking, well, I might do this or might do that in some carnal way as a backup system. So anyway, that's an important concept. I think God wants us to do that. The living God is using us today to do His work, brethren, and we need to be encouraged by these things, not discouraged by what is happening, but very encouraged, frankly. As Mr. Pyle brought out, we have tens of millions of people and, and households and ultimately hundreds of millions when you count up two and a half people in each household we have two or three hundred million, I guess, hearing our program, and it's growing every month. We're adding more stations, having more power. We really are, and we're very encouraged by that. God tells us in Matthew 28, turn to Matthew 28 now, if you would, and beginning in verse 18 after the resurrection, Jesus came and spoke to the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations." We are now beginning to do that more than ever. All of the nations, baptizing them into the name, meaning the authority, everything Christ stood for, not just in Jesus' name, but His true teaching, His whole message into the name, 
of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, most Protestants will try to tell you, well, the Ten Commandments were nailed to the cross. Oh, really? How come Jesus said you're to go out after His death and teach people to observe all things whatever I have commanded you? And Christ taught them to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. He kept the Sabbath. He taught them to tithe. He taught them to do all those things over and over. Not over and over, but a number of times when you read all the Scriptures. Certainly by teaching and by example, He told them to keep the Ten Commandments, which include the Sabbath. And, of course, He directly taught them to keep the Sabbath by His constant example. Luke 4.16, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was His custom. And you're to have Christ living His life in you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the key. And for you new brethren, some of you haven't heard my favorite scripture. The old brethren will get tired of it, but that's too bad. <laughs> Galatians. They like Galatians. Paul supposedly did away with the law of God in Galatians, which he did not. But Galatians 2 and verse 20 says this, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, Paul wrote, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of, as it ought to be translated, some have it, the faith of Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. And if you're converted, Christ will begin to live in you. He will not live a different kind of life. He will live the life He lived 1,900 years ago as He lives in you, a life based on God's commandments and expanded and magnified in the New Testament, but certainly keeping God's Sabbaths, God's holy days, and, of course, how to love God, how to love your neighbor and the whole thing. Being faithful to your wife, being faithful to your husband, never divorcing unless there's some huge reason, biblically commanded or allowed reason. It's very clear in the New Testament to do these things. So these are things we have to do. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ will be with His true church. Does that mean we're perfect? Or that our ministers are perfect? No, but He will be with us. He'll be leading and guiding us and helping, helping us ever more perfectly reflect His will as we grow in grace and in knowledge. Christ is the living head of the church as we've explained so many times. We are doing this. We're preaching, preaching, reaching and preaching millions of people with the full truth, not part of the truth, the full truth, more than, frankly, any organization on earth. We're teaching along with that, which is part of the truth, the right form of government because we're being trained to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God, as we've explained over and over. That's not a small point. That was one of the major 18 truths restored by Mr. Armstrong. We don't get into politicking and voting and kind of influencing people in that way. We're not going to be doing that in tomorrow's world. We should not be doing that today in church government. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter... Uh, uh, well, let me say one... No, I'll, I'll read this later. 1 Corinthians 6, if you would. 1 Corinthians 6, we find a scripture on that. One I've read many times, but it says here... And verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We're being trained right now as kings and priests under Jesus Christ. And if the world will be judged by you, 
Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 6 here. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? That's our calling, to literally judge angels. How much more things to pertain to this life? He says you need to have a wise man to make decisions. And so we do in the church of God. That's the pattern we have. And we teach that, practice that right government to prepare people to be kings and priests in tomorrow's world. But brethren, another thing I wanted to mention is that we don't jump to one extreme or the other. You know, there's some churches of God where the leader, in two or three cases now, have become a dictator. And I, at the summer camp, which was kind of encouraging also, I had two or three of our ministers and elders and even a couple of members come up. One's a host up here in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, Floyd Spencer, I think you remember him, some of you there, and very zealous. And uh, were telling me how five or six people have come, and another place five or six people have come, and another one three or four people have come, because this man is getting so arrogant and so mean, he's kicking people out right and left, and he won't even permit uh, people in his church to visit with their own son or daughter if they're with another Church of God group. It's just terrible. It's absolutely abominable. That man is not a correct minister. He's not a true minister. I label him a false minister. That's what he is. And he's got all kinds of wrong ideas. But that's very obviously wrong in people's eyes. So many of them are beginning to wake up and come with us. Another man is exalting himself and giving himself great titles and beginning to confuse people and hurting people in other ways. We're not going to that extreme. We don't go to the other extreme, though. The other extreme is to say, well, we're not sure of this, and let's all vote on that, and let's throw all the you know, balls up in the air and see how they come down. We don't do that either. We say God guided the church down through the ages. He guided Mr. Herbert Armstrong for 52 years. He had the right pattern. We're going to follow that pattern. And we're going to follow the pattern of the Bible, of course, most of all. And that's what we're doing. So there's a balance between the two extremes. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Right now, brethren, we are laying the foundation for a really big work. I don't mean the Catholic Church. We're not going to become as big as the Catholic Church. God calls us the little flock. We understand that. But we really are laying the foundation for a much, much bigger work right now. And I'm very grateful for that. With the help of Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and uh, Mr. Uh, Partian and Mr. Crockett, we have a wonderful team, and the other leaders, Mr. Rob McNair is here, and Mr. Uh, Charles Aguin, and so on. We have a wonderful team, and we're beginning to get that thing done. We have recently initiated five different initiatives, or introduced five different initiatives in the work. Most of you have heard of them, but you may not have thought of it this way. I'm very grateful because Dr. Vanell has contributed to some of them, Mr. Uh, Crockett and Mr. Charles Aguin to others, and so on. Right now, the first initiative is the Leadership Training Program. And boy, when I went out to this uh, conference and talked to people out there, I found a lot of people were in that in their local church, and people are writing, very encouraged by that, very encouraged by that Leadership Training Program, which has been sat out, and some of you have been in it here, you know, those, those sessions we have. The second is the Ministerial Training Program. And that's just for the ministers. That's a little higher level. And we never had one organized before in that way. And that's really good. The third one is the Living University. And that was not Dr. Germano's idea, by the way, at all. I want to make that very clear. When Mike Germano and I had lunch about 
a year and a half ago, a year ago last spring, he simply wanted, he was having an epiphany, if I want to call it that, because of a terrible health problem where he was given two weeks to live unless he had an operation. And it shook him. And he said, it made me realize what I ought to be doing. And I want to be back in the church. And would you mind, Mr. Meredith, if I started attending your church out in Asheville and help Mr. Fannin out there? And I said, well, of course not. I said, we can't recognize your eldership. He'd been ordained a local elder and worldwide. We can't recognize that for a while. I didn't give him any promise, but we need to have you with us for a while. But sure, if you can attend and that's in help, that's fine. And he was very grateful. That's all they asked. Weeks meant why, went by, Dr. Winnell went up and got to talking, and I don't think they talked about it the first time, but the second or third time, he began to realize that Dr. Winnell and Mrs. Winnell, I mean uh, Germano and Mrs. Germano, I'm sorry, uh, were into long-distance learning, and she even had a degree in that and had a lot of experience in that, and he some, and Dr. Germano himself, of course, is not a doctorate in education from the University of Southern California, which is one of the top-rated institutions in the whole western part of the United States, plus a law degree, very highly intelligent, educated man. So Dr. Winnell took the lead. I get the two docs mixed up, so if you'll excuse me if I say the wrong thing. I was kidding. Monica, as we were leaving for lunch, I said, I got a, I got a paradox here. So <laughs> Dr. Winnell and Dr. Germano. Now they're calling me doctor. I noticed, uh, I guess Mr. Ames introduced me as Dr. Meredith today. They've been calling me Mr. Meredith, which is fine. Either way. Just call me when it's time to eat. That's all I ask. And, uh, but I do have a legitimate doctorate because all our degrees are recognized because later Ambassador University was accredited and Dr. Winnell and Dr. Germano looked into it and have assured me it reflects back. So for the sake of the college, around the college, they may call me Dr. Meredith or at the church you can call me Dr. Mer or Mr. Meredith or as I say, be sure and call me when it's lunchtime or whatever. <laughs> Anyhow, but uh, so we have that and we're very grateful. That university, we already have about 150 students already registered. They've sent in money. They're registered. They want to be in the college. Mr. Armstrong started with four, four students, Betty Bates, Herman Hay, Richard David Armstrong, and uh, uh, my goodness, Raymond Cole. Those are the four original students. That's all they had the first year of ambassador. So because of what he did, we're not better than him. We're building on that foundation, but we now have 150 registered. And, of course, more can be involved because it's long-distance learning. We're starting. So we may end up with 1,500 or more before it's all over as this thing grows. Living University to teach hundreds of people out there on the college level a way of life and the truth of various subjects, but from God's point of view. The fourth initiative is something I've hoped for for years, and finally we have a man devoting full time, one of our most dedicated ministers in the Church of God ever, Mr. John O'Gwen's son, Charles O'Gwen, is right here with us. I don't see him here today, but I guess he's... There he is. Oh, thank you. And I'm trying to flatter you because you're here. We're going to make him work harder now. <laughs> but anyway, he is full-time in charge of the Internet. And he did that as for about five years in the world, building, uh, helping others build their businesses on the Internet. So he's helping our Internet site. So in one sense, we have like a new Internet site. It's being completely changed, updated, different servers in three different locations and all kinds of things to make it vastly more powerful and effective. I'm very grateful for that. Fourth or fifthly, Dr. Winnell has introduced these regional conferences and some of you attended. How many of you attended the regional conference a couple of years ago right here? 
raise your hands. Okay, a few hands. I think more of you did that than that. Then whatever. We had this conference right here where they were teaching, you know. And that was real inspiring to those people out there. And I've read some of the responses. Just people were excited, enthusiastic about that. So that's another thing that's really building the churches and building the work. So we're very grateful for those things. And brethren, that is causing people now to come together. We're having more donors, more co-workers. We're going to be having more members, I'm pretty sure, very quickly. And certainly our income is up for the first time ever almost. In July and August, we're up to 7.3% increase. And normally July and August are the lowest months in the year. And you older brethren remember I'm having to send out emergency letters sometimes this time of year. The whole base is getting bigger. And we are indeed very, very grateful. So we need to be grateful for what God is doing. God is preparing us to do something a lot more powerful, but it can't be us. If the builders build without God, they toil in vain, the psalmist said. God has got to be in it. We have got to be a church of God on our knees. We have got to be a church of God humble, fasting, praying, saying, Father, use us. Teach us, fashion and mold us, help us to do things your way and really mean it. Yes, it seems like a long haul to a lot of people. Some people in the church get weary with well-doing. The Apostle Paul encountered some of that at Jerusalem and in, he, in, in Israel around the original Church of God people because they were there in the land of Israel. And that's why he wrote the book of Hebrews. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. Paul had the same kind of situation he was facing. And here's some of his advice, inspired by Almighty God. Notice what Paul wrote. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest, they, lest we drift away. Hebrews 2, verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and that was, of course, the the statutes and judgments, the Ten Commandments were spoken directly with God's voice. And every transgression and disobedience received a just reward because, of course, the judgments told them to give them so many lashes or whatever. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? Brethren, we cannot neglect our salvation. We can't let the cares of this world and all this stuff coming into her head. Turn us aside. Drag us down. Get us confused. Turn to chapter 3. I'm just giving you some highlights here. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. People test God too. They go right to the edge and wonder if God's going to punish them sometimes and proved me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said they must always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He did not allow them to come into the promised land, which was a type of God's kingdom. Beware, brethren, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, that's interesting, isn't it, the way it's worded? An evil heart of unbelief. If you don't believe God, you're going to come up with a lot of stuff. You know, your carnal mind, my mind. If I don't walk with God, I'm going to come up with a lot of stuff. 
and it is not good stuff, an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another. We need to help each other, pray for each other, encourage each other. Exhort also, say, John or Jane, please, I'm praying for you. Please, you know, get off of it. Get away from your liquor habit. Get away from your cigarette habit. Quit cussing. Quit doing this or that, whatever it is. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is very tricky. Very tricky. It sneaks up on your blind side, and it gets you sometimes before you realize. So we have to have and understand that situation. Turn to chapter 6 now, Hebrews chapter 6, and let's begin reading in verse 4. Hebrews 6, 4. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Have you been enlightened? Do you really understand? And have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people sit in church and they're never converted. I know that. But if they've really been converted and God's Spirit is in them, and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, that doesn't mean if they backslide and didn't go clear back in the world, but if they completely fall away and quit obeying God and get into a bad way of life for years, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. He says in verse 8 or 9, But, beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though thus we speak. For God is not unjust. Notice this. God is not unjust, brethren, to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name. If you worked hard, you've been trying to help the church and help the brethren, God won't forget that in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. See, they were getting tired too. They were the original Christians. They are saying, it's been a long time. What's going to happen? The book of Hebrews was written apparently just before the fall of Jerusalem and apparently written, some scholars say, around 62 to 64 A.D., and the church began 31 A.D. So some of these people have been there over 30 years. Over 30 years. They say, it's been a long time. We've been through a lot. Christ still isn't here. What's going to happen? We don't understand. So each one, keep on to the end that you do not become sluggish. You see, we become sluggish sometimes. We don't pray. When do you pray? You pray first thing in the morning. That's when you'd better pray. Get up. Wash your face or shave, get awake, and then you better pray before anything else intervenes or you'll find yourself halfway through the day or sometimes all the way through the day and you will not have prayed because you did not seek first the kingdom of God in that way. That's important, brethren. Put God first. Put God first. So don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We have to have faith and patience. Notice chapter 10 now. Hebrews 10 and verse 23. Again, he gets back on this theme because they were the old timers. They were having these same attitudes that we're having sometimes. Hebrews 10 and verse 23. He said, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Some of us waver. Some of our brethren out there, we're not sure about this and we're not sure about that. Let's go looking around at all these other groups and try to use our own human imagination or whatever. Don't waver. 
For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up. Yes, you need to exhort, pray for, sometimes in a right way. Not pick at each other. Don't do that. That can be very aggravating. But in a loving way, help each other. Stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Some people find it mighty convenient to miss church. Mighty convenient at the slightest uh, need for a vacation or the slightest need for a headache or a cold. If I had missed church or missed school back when I was in school because I had a runny nose or a cold, I'd still be back in the second grade. I grew up in Missouri and I always had a runny nose because they'd get out and play in the rain in the spring and the snow in the winter and you know what I mean, I had a sinus problem. I had headaches all my life. I didn't stay home because of headaches. I never finished the second or third grade. Don't do that. If you're really sick, that's different. But be sure you are sick. Don't come up with excuses. God knows your heart. You know, one, some people say, well, God understands. And when these really weak people come along and tell me that, I think, yeah, He sure does understand. <laughs> he knows what you're up to. He knows what you're up to. He knows the excuses you're making for not obeying Him, whatever it may be. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And brethren, we see the day approaching. We see China rising up, whole big articles recently coming out, that with more power in their army than ever before, now beefing up their navy, now having this missile-destroying exercise and all the rest of it and able to push computers and wipe out our financial system, if you understand what I'm talking about. They have $1.4 trillion in reserves. Most of it's in dollars and U.S. bonds. We come a little further back this way, and you have 12 million illegal aliens, vast numbers of being arrested. They kick them out. They come right back again. Huge crime rate, huge other problem rate. And they literally have meetings all over Phoenix and over San Antonio and Dallas and San Diego and Los Angeles, which you read about. Thousands of them saying, this is our land. This belonged to us. We're going to take it back. And you're not going to stop it. The reconquista, the reconquering of the whole southwest of the United States, they're calling it. Millions of them. Is that going to help us? Is that going to get better? No, it's not. I'm sorry. It's going to get worse. And then we have 1.2 billion people in the Muslim religion. And they don't like us. And increasing hundreds of millions of them are being turned against us. And there are more and more of them becoming radical Muslim extremists to blow us up, to literally cut our people's heads off with their own hands and all that kind of thing. It's not pretty. Rape our women. Brutalize our men terrorized by rape and murder and torture of these people in Darfur and these people all over as the Arab Janjaweed come in and do that. And they're Muslims. And that is not a religion that God is blessing, as I hope you understand. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Many, many other things are happening. The wolves are circling, and America is not obeying God. We're turning away from God. We're kicking God out of the public square in every way we can. We're kicking God out of education more and more. And in the living university, we're going to put God back into education as best we can. But that's a mighty small effort compared to what's happening in the world. But we'll do the best we can. No, we have to really realize that we're near the end of an age, brethren, and search, uh, search our hearts and help stir each other up.
Let's go on now to uh, chapter 12. No, I'm, I'm going to go here uh, chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't give up. Your confidence, your belief in God has great reward, for you have need of endurance. See, these were the original members. They were getting tired. You have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and it's a very little while from God's point of view, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by what? Faith. The just shall live by faith. We have to have faith in the invisible God. Believe that He's there. Believe that this Word is His message to us and learn to obey it. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And then you go to chapter 12. You have the wonderful uh, chapter 11, the faith chapter, which I've read great parts of recently. I'll just read the one verse maybe. It says here in verse 6, chapter 11, verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who, what, lackadaisically seek him? No, those who diligently seek him. With all our hearts we go after God. He is a rewarder of those people. In chapter 12 then, he summarizes. Verse 1, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. It's like a little trap. Sin easily ensnares us. It snaps. And then we're caught. And let us run with endurance for the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Have your mind on Christ. Realize what He went through for you. He says in verse 18, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, you're not the Old Testament Israelites coming up to Mount Sinai, verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore as they heard the very voice of God, the voice of Christ, booming across like thunder, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned, they heard. And so terrifying was the sight that even though Moses had dealt with God a lot before that, this was an unusual way God did speak with total power and literally shake that whole mountain like a rag doll. Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion. And you, brethren, that's you and me. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. There are angels all around this building because many of you are the people of God and God is concerned. An innumerable company of angels. They'll be there with us in the kingdom. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Someday, brethren, if you overcome and I overcome and we really put God's kingdom first and we get off of it and we go all out for the kingdom of God and we burn our bridges and say, God, I'm going to give my life totally to you. I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to hold anything back. 
And with all our being we go toward the kingdom of God. We'll be there. And who will we be there with? We'll be there fellowshipping with, communing with, talking with, and actually as I say, fellowshipping with God and with Jesus Christ who sits at God's right hand. And we will be there with Abraham and Isaac and Israel and Moses and Samuel and David and Elijah and Elijah and Peter and Paul and all the New Testament apostles and all the great women and men of God from all ages. We will be fellowshipping with the spirits of just men made perfect in that divine family, sharing with them because we have learned to develop that character, their character, God's character through God working with us and we'll have that kind of fellowship forever. It's worth it. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to seek God. We've got to burn our bridges. We've got to fast. We've got to say, God, we mean it and go toward the kingdom of God with all our hearts.